The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you could join us. We have a great show today. The return of Mike Palindrome. And not just a solo episode this time, but a writer we both enjoy and admire. The great 20th century American poet, William Carlos Williams. You may know him from such hits as The Red Wheelbarrow and Spring and All, and this is just to say. Well, guess what? He also wrote a fantastic short story called the use of force, which drew upon his years as a physician in working-class New Jersey. William Carlos Williams is a very interesting piece of the American literature puzzle. Born in 1883 to an English father and a Puerto Rican mother, he lived for most of his early life in New Jersey, until going to University of Pennsylvania, where he met fellow student Ezra Pound. Then, when poetry shifted its gaze toward Europe— he stayed put, along with fellow poets like Robert Frost and Marianne Moore. He wrote and wrote. His wife used to say that a patient would come in, see the doctor, William Carlos Williams. The patient would leave, and bang, she'd hear the typewriter come out on the table and the clacking away of the keys. An inspirational figure. He strove for simplicity, for plain words doing an honest day's work, for efficiency, and for a realistic and powerful effect. But that did not mean his ideas were simple or plain or quote-unquote homey. No, William Carlos Williams and his poetry is a wellspring of surprising thoughts. Poet Randall Jarrell said, quote, William Carlos Williams is as magically observant and mimetic as a good novelist. He reproduces the details of what he sees with surprising freshness, clarity, and economy, and he sees just as extraordinarily Sometimes the forms of this earth, the spirit moving behind the letters. His quick transparent lines have the nervous and contracted strength move as jerkily and intently as a bird. End quote. Now that's interesting. Well, what about writing fiction? We get a glimpse of that today. In another of our self-contained episodes, Mike will join us to introduce the story, The Use of Force, then we'll hear the story, then we'll come back with a discussion. But before we do that, let's hear a few emails from our listeners. Dorothy Ann of Nova Scotia writes, Subject, Virgin Whore Podcast. How fascinating. Another wonderful podcast, Dorothy Ann says. I often play podcasts while I go to sleep, and you have a very soothing voice, so you are often the choice. But then I wake up and have to listen acutely to the episode. Love every one you've done and recommend you all the time. You are a great source of joy in my life. Thank you, Dorothy Ann. Well, Dorothy Ann, what a wonderful email. Thank you, Dorothy Ann, up there in the land of Anne of Green Gables. Actually, there is some literary origin to the name Nova Scotia, which, as you can probably guess, means New Scotland in Latin. Why Latin? Why would it be in Latin? Were these the ancient Romans? No, of course not. We know how to name things in English. 
Over here in the New World, we have New England, don't we? New York, New Brunswick, New Hampshire. We can do all those things in English. Even Newfoundland was originally Newfoundland, which is pretty great. I love towns like that, like those autobiographies with titles like Me by Katherine Hepburn. Way to, way to go, you. You found the right title. I'll name my novel, Novel, and the sequel to my novel, Sequel. William Carlos Williams, while we're on the subject of him, called his first book, Poems. It's very good. It's like calling your band, The Band, or naming your book, Book. Where were we? Nova Scotia. It turns out it was viewed as New Scotland, but it was settled by a man named Sir William Alexander, the first Earl of Stirling, who was granted the territory by King James VI in 1621. Sir William was also a poet, so we should probably give him a little poetic license. He was a man of words, after all. He thought Nova Scotia sounded better, grander, more dignified than New Scotland. And why shouldn't we trust a man who could write such well-titled poems as Sonnet, Sonnet 1, Sonnet 2, and Sonnet 3, all the way up to Sonnet 105. He wrote in other forms, too. He wrote Madrigals. Those have the zippy titles of Madrigal 1, Madrigal 2, and so forth. You get the idea. We get from him Sestina 1, Sestina 2, Sestina 3, and Elegy 1, and Elegy 2, and Elegy 3. And when he really wanted to go crazy, he called his poems, quote, some verses, end quote. So we have some verses 1, some verses 2, and some verses 3. A few are titled after the dedication. And there's a poetic cycle about doomsday called Doomsday. <laughs> the whole cycle about doomsday. The first poem in the cycle is called Doomsday the First Hour. The second one is called Doomsday the Second Hour. And so on, all around the hours of the clock. So thank you, Sir William, for showing us how it's done. Nova Scotia. That actually might be his finest work as far as titles go. And the email from Dorothy Ann might be the finest email I've received, at least in a while. That's how you write an email, dear listeners, full of positive reinforcement. I greatly appreciate emails like that from listeners. Here's, here's, here's how not to write an email. Got an example of those, too. This one comes from Robert and is titled, Shout Out. Dear Jack, I'm a longtime listener and a big fan of the show. Well, email is so far, so far so good. Robert, thank you. He says, I've already written you once before, which you read on the Machiavelli episode. Well, since then, I started grad school, furthering my education in English. One thing your show has inspired me to do was to be more involved in all things literature. And that led me to become one of the editors of my school's literary magazine. This is a great email so far. And then, here's where it goes off a cliff. It says, Our online magazine, the Pomona Valley Review, is currently accepting submissions for poetry, short stories, and original artwork and photographs. My question, or plea, I guess, would be to see if you could shout out the magazine, whether on the show or even on your Twitter account. Robert. What? Are you kidding me? You want a freebie? A free shout-out? 
The email continues, we accept from everyone, and I only want to spread the submission to all different types of people so they can get their work recognized. It's a free online magazine, so there's no cost to anyone. Well, that sounds suspicious. I only want more people who love to write to have a chance to possibly see their work somewhere different. If not, I understand. Oh, Robert, now you're trying to pretend that you're so nice. He concludes, I would be so excited if you should. Either way, I love the show. Thank you. Best, Robert. P.S. The website for submissions is at www.pomonavalleyreview.com. P.S.S. I started reading Elena Ferrante from Yours and Mike's Recommendation. She's amazing. That's all I want to say about that. Oh, that's the end of the email. Robert of PomonaValleyReview.com. You think you're fooling me, don't you? You think you can write a few words of praise and then I'll just fall all over myself promoting the Pomona Valley Review at PomonaValleyReview.com with its purported poetry, short stories, and original artwork and photographs. You think I'll just throw that out there that people can check out PomonaValleyReview.com? You think I'll impose that on my listeners? Do you have any idea how much it costs to advertise on this show, these precious seconds are like gold. And here you are, calling for submissions for your free online magazine and asking people to check out the Pomona Valley Review. Fat chance, Robert. I'm way too clever to fall for your tricks. I'm glad you're reading Elena Ferrante, Robert of PomonaValleyReview.com. And I wish you success over there, even if I will not be shouting out the Pomona Valley Review with its current policy of accepting submissions for poetry, short stories, and original artwork slash photographs. Better luck next time. Find yourself some other sucker. We'll be back with Mike Palindrome and William Carlos Williams after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again, fresh off his solo episode, is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So, how did it feel, Mike? Glad to have the chance to fly solo for an episode? Uh, it made me really appreciate, you know, how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found it kind of hard to create uh, the, the kind of conversational ups yeah. and downs yeah. in your solo. Yep. Yep. And, um, <laughs> but I did have a lot of fun because it's, I was thinking it's, it's pretty rare to talk to yourself unless you're insane. <laughs> and, and I've, I've probably only done it a hundred and some times at this point. <laughs> and I think you really hear yourself and think differently yeah. when you're sort of talking to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It, it'll crack me up when people will say, boy, you know, you really, you're wasting my time. You got off on this tangent and then they'll post the the moments of the tangent and it'll be about 15 seconds. And I'm just like, <laughs> I was talking for an hour. <laughs> I'm sorry that 15 seconds were, uh, were not on point. It's maybe a little harder than it looks. <laughs> yeah, and I, I will say it feeds the ego a bit, not being interrupted. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so before we begin here with our story, our William Carlos Williams deep dive into his story, The Use of Force, we had a request that was directed to you in particular for literature about happily married couples. And our requester uh, pointed out, uh, as I think a lot of people have noticed, so many stories about married couples are full of chaos and strife, which makes sense, after all, since... Literature and fiction tends to be based on conflict, and that's what makes a good story. But he was, I think he might be recently married, and he was saying, you know, it'd be kind of nice to find literature, if there is any, about happily married couples. So, do you have any recommendations for him? Well, the first, I have two. The okay. first is an obvious one, which is Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. Um, but it how, has a how long are they act. married? Though. It has a bit of an asterisk, yeah. It's it's really <laughs> <laughs> well. That's the other problem is that a lot of times, you know, they get married in the final sentence, or you yeah, know, the chapter concludes and the the ending is, you know, I married him, uh, but then you don't actually see them married, so you get the the courtship, but not the marriage. Um, and the 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 second is uh, a more tr traditional answer, but it's. It's one that I think a lot of people overlook and has gone by the wayside. Um, is Mister Mister Bridge and Mrs. Bridge mm, by by Evan yeah. Connell? Who, yep. And I read this in the MFA program. Um, it's two. If people don't know it, it's two separate novels. They're, they're upper class uh, married couple, Walter and in India, and each of them has a book. And the books don't really connect. It's about 1930s some midwest city um but it, it's funny it's really funny it, it, and it uh talks about being awkward feeling lonely being married and and you know being in love and it's it's actually it's not at all for old people i think when i picked up the book i i was kind of resentful of my teacher that he was making us read it mm. And I just got into it so much. And I think Paul Newman made a movie about yes, it. Yes, I remember that. 
I think it was yeah. called Mr. Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge, maybe. Yeah. So, and um, Evan Connell is a name that you don't hear very often. Uh, he had the misfortune of writing uh, a novel called Diary of a Rapist, mm. which was a horrible disaster. So, yeah. But well, he, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, but the, the, these two books, the, the couple of books I consider real gems, the Lord Burner's childhood books and, you know, look, Love in a Cold Climate by Nancy Mitford. And I put Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge up there with those kind of books. Mm. It has a lot of surprises in it, which is fun because I think you pick up the book and you see these wrinkled old faces and you, you think, okay, I'm going to be in for sentimentality and nostalgia. And it's really a lot more than that. Mm. Okay, so. well, that's a great choice. So today we're looking at a classic short story, The Use of Force by William Carlos Williams, although he is not well known as a short story writer. And um, maybe we'll get to that in a little bit. But before we listen to the story, is there anything that you'd like to say? Um, not really. Okay. <laughs> Let's dive in. <laughs> well, actually, I thought maybe what we could do is just touch on his uh, poetry which I think he's a lot more well-known for. And um, he, in particular, he's very famous for a a poem called The Red Wheelbarrow, which Uh I'll just read. It's so short. Uh, It's so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. (laughs) And people should really seek it out and, and see all the line breaks and everything. I think it's a very visual poem. But... I'm assuming that you're you were familiar with the red wheelbarrow and and uh, I'm wondering what your take is on that. I think it was one of the first poems um, I put to memory. Hmm. I, I I remember I went to tennis camp and I met a prep school kid who um, it was a summer tennis camp and I met a prep school kid who uh, memorized a poem a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were all impressed, but then he said, I'm memorizing poems like the red wheelbarrow. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I memorized that. He also knew some soliloquies. It was pretty impressive, but maybe it, it was a poem, like, maybe uh, it was a poem every other week. So it's like in, in, uh, Mark Twain, where they're, they're getting all those certificates for memorizing Bible verses and they all start out with Jesus wept as the, the shortest <laughs> verse in the Bible. <laughs> right. I liked it. Because it was so visual and mm-hmm. easy to understand, um, I have to confess I, I, I did go in, in terms of my poetry taste toward you know Ashbery and mm-hmm. um, so I'm I'm more of a I like to think about the poem and laugh rather than to to feel a poem if that makes any sense. But I I do like William Carlos Williams and I think um, I like Patterson. I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember. You know, the kind of stuff that maybe people don't readily think of his poetry that way. But yeah, so you I mean, it was interesting that you say you like to feel a poem or that you you contrasted what you like with poems with feeling a poem. And what did you feel when you read The Red Wheelbarrow? What I mean, I think there is emotion here. What emotion are you getting from it? Being alone, Mm. being, um, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of seeing everything for what it is. Kind of uh, melancholy, uh, yeah. contemplative. Yeah, and then you get you, you get little twists, like beside the white chickens. I mm-hmm. think the word chicken is probably the least used word in poetry. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> it's just not a good word for a poem, but you know, he pulls it off here. Yeah. I mean, my first thought is this is really a poem for poets and lovers of poetry. It's got this great analysis, you know, sort of built into it. And it, it really emphasizes the importance of vivid imagery or description. It's sort of asking us to ask questions like, what do words mean and what does language mean? And, and can language capture uh, the, the physical world around us and all of those things that would be of interest to poets. But I also find a lot of nostalgia in here and, and kind of the connection with human-made things like wheelbarrows with just general nature like rain and and white chickens. And in a few short words, it's kind of capturing this farm. And what do you think the words so much depends are doing? What what depends on these things? The immediate thing is is the work that's being done. Oh, like the the earth that is carried in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. I mean, but you can also I think you also definitely get the feeling that this poem depends on it. Right. You know, Right. I think it's a great it's a great opening. So yeah. much depends. It's right. a, you know, it's um, suggestive and it you slide right by it, but then when you really try to nail it down, you think, well, wait, what what is he saying depends on this? Is it our understanding of the world? Is it our sanity? Is it our ability to recognize the beauty in things around us? Our appreciation of the world? Is it poetry? So much in poetry depends upon Mm-hmm. Uh, things like this. And just the way that he leaves all of those interpretations open is really a, a beautiful poem. Yeah. Okay, but the poet also was a physician. He had to be. His books, I think his books of poetry sold something like 37 copies in his lifetime or, <laughs> or something. Although he was <laughs> he was a friend of Ezra Pound's. They went to college together. But he was not exactly celebrated like a Robert Frost or or anyone like that in his lifetime, even though his stature today is is among people like that. His poetry was never enough for him to live on. Uh, so he worked all of his life pretty much as a physician in New Jersey, and he served a lot of working class neighborhoods. And that is kind of the setting of the story. There's one other thing I wanted to mention uh, about the story, just as a quick background note, which is I did some research into diphtheria, which is mentioned in the story. And this is, mm-hmm. we have a vaccine that protects us from it, but in the early 20th century, it was rampant. And in the 1920s, when the story was written, there were over 100,000 cases of it diagnosed each year and something like ten to 15,000 deaths, most of them uh, children. And even the, the president's 12-year-old daughter died from it in New Jersey, which may have been part of the fear that was associated with this disease. Wow. So with all that in mind, let's take a quick break, listen to the story, and come back for our conversation. The Use of Force by William Carlos Williams They were new patients to me. All I had was the name, Olson. Please come down as soon as you can. My daughter is very sick. When I arrived, I was met by the mother, a big, startled-looking woman, very clean and apologetic, who merely said, Is this the doctor? And let me in. In the back, she added, You must excuse us, doctor. We have her in the kitchen, where it is warm. It is very damp here sometimes. The child was fully dressed and sitting on her father's lap near the kitchen table. He tried to get up, but I motioned for him not to bother, took off my overcoat, and started to look things over. 
I could see that they were all very nervous, eyeing me up and down distrustfully. As often in such cases, they weren't telling me more than they had to. It was up to me to tell them. That's why they were spending three dollars on me. The child was fairly eating me up with her cold, steady eyes, and no expression to her face whatever. She did not move and seemed inwardly quiet, an unusually attractive little thing, and as strong as a heifer in appearance. But her face was flushed, she was breathing rapidly, and I realized that she had a high fever. She had magnificent blonde hair in profusion. One of those picture children often reproduced in advertising leaflets and the photogravure sections of the Sunday papers. She's had a fever for three days, began the father, and we don't know what it comes from. My wife has given her things, you know, like people do, but it don't do no good. And there's been a lot of sickness around, so we thought you'd better look her over and tell us what is the matter. As doctors often do, I took a trial shot at it as a point of departure. Has she had a sore throat? Both parents answered me together. No, no, she says her throat don't hurt her. Does your throat hurt you? Added the mother to the child, but the little girl's expression didn't change, nor did she move her eyes from my face. Have you looked? I tried to, said the mother, but I couldn't see. As it happens, we had been having a number of cases of diphtheria in the school to which this child went during that month, and we were all, quite apparently, thinking of that, though no one had as yet spoken of the thing. Well, I said, suppose we take a look at the throat first. I smiled in my best professional manner, and asking for the child's first name, I said, Come on, Matilda, open your mouth, and let's take a look at your throat. Nothing doing. Aw, oh, come on, I coaxed. Just open your mouth wide and let me take a look. Look, I said, opening both hands wide. I haven't anything in my hands. Just open up and let me see. Such a nice man, put in the mother. Look how kind he is to you. Come on, do what he tells you to. He won't hurt you. At that, I ground my teeth in disgust. If only they wouldn't use the word hurt, I might be able to get somewhere. But I did not allow myself to be hurried or disturbed, but speaking quietly and slowly, I approached the child again. As I moved my chair a little nearer, suddenly, with one cat-like movement, both her hands clawed instinctively for my eyes, and she almost reached them too. In fact, she knocked my glasses flying, and they fell, though unbroken, several feet away from me on the kitchen floor. Both the mother and father almost turned themselves inside out in embarrassment and apology. You bad girl, said the mother, taking her and shaking her by one arm. Look what you've done, the nice man. For heaven's sake, I broke in, don't call me a nice man to her. I'm here to look at her throat in the chance she might have diphtheria and possibly die of it, but that's nothing to her. Look here, I said to the child, we're going to look at your throat. You're old enough to understand what I'm saying. Will you open it now by yourself, or shall we have to open it for you? Not a move. Even her expression hadn't changed. Her breaths, however, were coming faster and faster. Then the battle began. I had to do it. I had to have a throat culture for her own protection. But first, I told the parents that it was entirely up to them. I explained the danger, but said that I would not insist on a throat examination so long as they would take the responsibility. If you don't do what the doctor says, you'll have to go to the hospital. 
the mother admonished her severely. Oh, yeah? I had to smile to myself. After all, I had already fallen in love with the savage brat. The parents were contemptible to me. In the ensuing struggle, they grew more and more abject, crushed, exhausted, while she surely rose to magnificent heights of insane fury of effort, bred of her terror of me. The father tried his best, and he was a big man, but the fact that she was his daughter, his shame at her behavior, and his dread of hurting her made him release her just at the critical times when I had almost achieved success till I wanted to kill him. But his dread also that she might have diphtheria made him tell me to go on, go on though he himself was almost fainting, while the mother moved back and forth behind us, raising and lowering her hands in an agony of apprehension. Put her in front of you on your lap, I ordered, and hold both her wrists. But as soon as he did, the child let out a scream. Don't! You're hurting me! Let go of my hands! Let them go, I tell you! Then she shrieked, terrifyingly, hysterically. Stop it! Stop it! You're killing me! Do you think she can stand it, doctor? Said the mother. You get out, said the husband to his wife. Do you want her to die of diphtheria? Come on now, hold her, I said. Then I grasped the child's head with my left hand and tried to get the wooden tongue to press her between her teeth. She fought with clenched teeth desperately. But now I also had grown furious at a child. I tried to hold myself down, but I couldn't. I know how to expose a throat for inspection. And I did my best. When finally I got the wooden spatula behind the last teeth and just the point of it into the mouth cavity, she opened up for an instant but before I could see anything, she came down again, and gripping the wooden blade between her molars, she reduced it to splinters before I could get it out again. Aren't you ashamed? The mother yelled at her. Aren't you ashamed to act like that in front of the doctor? Get me a smooth-handled spoon of some sort, I told the mother. We're going through with this. The child's mouth was already bleeding. Her tongue was cut, and she was screaming in wild, hysterical shrieks. Perhaps I should have desisted and come back in an hour or more. No doubt it would have been better. But I have seen at least two children lying dead in bed of neglect in such cases, and feeling that I must get a diagnosis now or never, I went at it again. But the worst of it was that I too had got beyond reason. I could have torn the child apart in my own fury and enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to attack her. My face was burning with it. The damned little brat must be protected against her own idiocy, one says to oneself at such times. Others must be protected against her. It is a social necessity, and all these things are true. But a blind fury, a feeling of adult shame, bred of a longing for muscular release are the operatives. One goes on to the end. In a final, unreasoning assault, I overpowered the child's neck and jaws. I forced the heavy silver spoon back of her teeth and down her throat till she gagged. And there it was, both tonsils covered with membrane. She had fought valiantly to keep me from knowing her secret. She had been hiding that sore throat for three days at least and lying to her parents in order to escape just such an outcome as this. Now, truly, she was furious. She had been on the defensive before, but now she attacked, tried to get off her father's lap and fly at me, while tears of defeat blinded her eyes. 
Okay, Mike. So it sounds like this may have been your first encounter with the fiction of William Carlos Williams. What did you think of the story? I loved it. It felt unedited. Hmm. It felt refreshing. I, I guess that yeah. I think of it together. Um, yeah, the language. And he said that at one point he read, I think his first work of poetry came out the same year as T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And huh. he thought that The Wasteland, he later said that he thought that it set him back 20 years in his poetry <laughs> because he had been developing this idea that American poetry should use kind of a, an American vernacular. It should use plain language. It should follow, you know, the, the people of America and not try to insert itself into the European tradition and to be a commentary on everything from, you know, Greek literature up through Shakespeare, through Dante, through everything in the European tradition. And then when he read T.S. Eliot, he he was kind of blown away by the wasteland. And I think he thought, maybe I haven't thought this through. Maybe this is not the way to go in poetry. And so I think it took him a while to kind of relocate himself in in his project as a poet. But you can definitely see those instincts and those impulses in this story. It's it's very direct, it's very efficient, and it's very plain spoken. It feels like the language that a a doctor in a working class neighborhood would actually be thinking and using. I found it so original. I think I was I was kind of expecting something else. Um maybe something more beautiful mm. from mm -hmm. a poet. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's, you know, as as someone who doesn't write poetry and has read a lot of beautiful poetry. Yeah, I, I just found it. I, I just sunk into this world, this this scene. Yeah, it doesn't take long. Right. I mean, by this by the second paragraph, the whole thing is is really set in motion that he's they were new patients to me. You sort of know that he's a physician. He had the name Olson. And then it's when I arrived, I was met by the mother, a big, startled-looking woman, very clean and apologetic. And then she describes, we have her in the kitchen where it is warm. It is very damp here sometimes. And it, it feels like, wow, we've, we're only, you know, 50 words into this story, but already you see this woman, you see his role, and then you see this house where they're trying to take care of this sick daughter. You really get a sense of the kind of circumstances in which they're living. Yeah, and it's such a short story, you know, a, a story that isn't very long. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a miracle the way he builds tension so quickly. Yeah, I don't know if it's about a third of the story. It seems like it's going to be kind of a conventional doctor story, right? Almost like, you know, that guy who was a veterinarian and, and rode around the countryside in England. And you, you kind of, it kind of has that feel of... You know, well, the phone rang and I went down to see what was the matter. And it's this kindly physician who shows up and and then it kind of takes a turn. And the moment I thought it started to turn was where he says, at that, I ground my teeth in disgust, where he's. He's saying that the, the mother is saying, oh, he won't hurt you. And he says, at uh -huh. that, I ground my teeth in disgust. And that's the first moment where I think, oh, boy, maybe this physician is, it's got a little more edge to him than I'm than a typical kindly doctor. And then after that, it's just one surprise after another. 
I guess maybe I'm a meaner person than you because my moment was <laughs> later. <laughs> my moment was later. It was, for heaven's sake, I broke in. Don't yeah. call me nice. Don't call me a nice man to her. Yeah, that's the moment. And he where... announces, "I'm here to look at her throat on the chance that she might have diphtheria and possibly die of it." That he says that in front of the girl, and he interrupts the mother to say that, who's trying to just say, you know, open your mouth for this nice man. I had that as number two. Um, as the second moment where uh, I th- I was starting to think, wow, this is really a bedside manner that that might not be what I mean. The funny thing is, I'm not sure if this is the bedside manner I would expect or not expect in a physician, as far as what a physician is thinking. But it's definitely mm-hmm. not what I would expect a physician to want to portray themselves as thinking. Yeah, right? I mean, it's, you know, I thought a, a number of things as to try to justify to why he was behaving that way, like he was having a bad day or that he had had his reputation mm. somehow attacked. and But then you get these things like that he's somehow attracted to her and you get, you, yeah. you know, you get these each time you think you know the story and the story almost reads like a writing exercise at first. William Carlos Williams really ch- changes it up. Mm, yeah. Well, since you brought it up that it's almost like he's attracted to her, there is a reading of the story and a lot of people have criticized it and mm-hmm. said it's too sexual. You know, it's disturbingly sexual. Mm-hmm. I think there is an element of that. I, I The way I read it is a little bit different, not that it's overtly a story of sexual assault, but that the scenario between the two between the physician and the girl was Mm -hmm. so charged and so violent emotionally that Williams is using the language of assault. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's borrowing the language of assault in order to convey just how charged this was. But I don't think he's literally describing an act of perversion. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it's... I think he says that she is pretty rather than or does he say that he she's he's actually attracted to her i forget well when he starts out he he says um you know her hair oh right when he first meets her he he says she's as healthy as a heifer and oh, right and then he which is not you know <laughs> oh yeah he says she was she was an unusually attractive little thing as strong as a heifer oh, in appearance right. and she had magnificent blonde hair in profusion mm-hmm. um but I just thought of all of that as being basically externally, you would think she was a girl who could be in a magazine ad, but she may be hiding this secret disease that is concealed. You know, she's not sitting there clearly dying before your eyes. She looks healthy enough if you don't know what she might be facing. You mentioned sort of his motive, and you sounds like you were looking for things outside the story. I found the thing inside the story to be compelling, which is that he... Uh, has seen a couple of children die of this and mm-hmm. die of neglect. And so it seems like he's bringing to this a lot of past trauma from his work as a physician, where he's thinking the easiest thing to do would be to turn around and and walk out the door and maybe uh, give them their $3 back. And at one point he says, I won't even do this if you're willing to take the responsibility for it. But he then says he he clearly doesn't want that to happen. He wants to to press through and make sure that he gets the throat culture to try to save her if he can. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking for reasons because there were clearly moments where I, I I was against him. 
Yeah. And I wanted to kind of rally, rally back to him if I could. And so I would start thinking like, well, he's, you know, he's a very human, he's very human in his bedside manner. Right. There are definitely more moments near the end where I was sort of cheering for him. Yeah. But not even, not sure why other than, I mean, clearly disagreeing with his method, but wanting him to, to be a hero. Yeah. Yeah, well, he says, you know, she must be protected against her own idiocy, and others must be protected against her. I mean, this is a highly contagious disease, and it's important to know if she has it so a lot of other people won't get sick. But I agree with you. He he gets, even in spite of all of that, he gets kind of carried away. And oh, he's yeah. acknowledging that he's he's not doing this just for the motive that we would associate with a healer or a, a physician, but he's he's caught up in the drama of it, and he wants to win, and he's he's acting out of fury. And what's he say? It's a beautiful sentence, although it's disturbing. A blind fury, a feeling mm-hmm. of adult shame, bred of a longing for muscular release, are the operatives. And then <laughs> one goes on to the end. <laughs> it's ultimately, I just felt like. I admired that he was presenting this to us as a, not just showing us how he was flawed or how he was human, but showing us a really dramatic, uh, asking us to choose and to wrestle with whether we think this guy is is the kind of doctor we want to have in our society. Yeah, I mean, you really feel the two wills, the girl's will and the doctor's will, the way the story builds. You really feel like you're you're not sure who will relent. Mm-hmm. I think you you start off thinking like, oh, the child, the ch- she's only a child. She, of course, she's going to relent, but then she doesn't, and then you you get this feeling that he might just kill her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. yeah. That he he that that could be a consequence of what this is building to, and also, and then at the end, <laughs> where where he says uh, she had been on the defensive before, but now she attacked. And the mm-hmm. last sentence, tried to get off her father's lap and fly at me while tears of defeat blinded her eyes. I mean, she's almost like an animal at that point. Yeah. And he has treated her like one, or he's treated her like a, a more powerful animal treating a less powerful animal or something. And it feels, it does feel like we're just watching two yeah. uh, incredible wills clashing in a battle that has gone way beyond just a need to take care of this girl and get a throat culture from her. You know, I forgot that he was a physician. Mm. Um, yeah, I was trying to remember if we mentioned this in our Writers at Work episode. Yeah, uh, we might if, have alluded to it. I don't think we spent a lot of time on it. Because there's there's stuff here about the parents. I mean, the parents are great in this story. The parents are kind of <laughs> like... <laughs> Kind of like the, re- the the reader, like not really sure what to expect, and yeah. you know, kind of expecting, kind of, kind of hoping that things just turn out okay, because you, you don't want the story to end with death. And they're they're embarrassed, and yeah, they almost can't believe what their daughter is doing and how he's how she's treating the the doctor. There's a a really excellent passage where he's talking about the father. And he says, uh, the father tried his best, and he was a big man, but the fact that she was his daughter, his shame at her behavior, and his dread of hurting her made him release her just at the critical times when I had almost achieved success till I wanted to kill him. 
Oh, man. But his dread also that she might have diphtheria made him tell me to go on, go on, though he himself was almost fainting, while the mother moved back and forth behind us, raising and lowering her hands in an agony of apprehension. I mean, it it is like they are calling him in to do what they could never do, which is kind of what a lot of us do, I think, as parents when we have, uh, when we go to see the doctor in in smaller ways than this. But Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I could give an infant a shot, for example, but it's necessary that they get them. And so it's, I appreciate the the doctors. I can remember I had, uh, I guess it was like a two-year-old, maybe not even, maybe it wasn't even two. I don't think he could talk. I had my son in and, and the... The pediatrician came in the room and he remembered her from the time before and she had given him a shot and and he just burst into tears when he saw her. <laughs> we were saying, you know, oh, you know, but this is this is Dr. Karen and she's your friend and don't you remember how nice she is? And and, <laughs> and the doctor just looked at us and said, I'm used to it. I get this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> And in this case, their actual uh, the the fact that it's until William Carlos William or until the the narrator of the story puts it on the table, what is really at stake here? At first, it's just hovering over them that this is that they all fear that it's diphtheria, but none of them are are willing to say it. it kind of gives you that chill, knowing that that's. That's what's behind a lot of these interactions with doctors, just the fear of what it possibly could be. And I I sort of took that to be what the daughter, in the end, that's that's what the problem was for the daughter, right? Mm. That that's what was motivating her. She was not just a a crazy young animal-like person, but she was terrified of the bad news. It was worse for her to face reality than reality itself would have been. She just did not want to expose herself to the idea that she was actually sick. And in that, I kind of found this resonance. I don't know if this is stretching things a little too far, but I kind of found this resonance with the red wheelbarrow and with William Carlos Williams's poetry and the idea of there is a reality there. There are things that are true, and so much depends upon our ability to recognize them for what they are. And here's this girl who would almost rather pretend and ignore what might be terrible news than let it surface and and let it be exposed and then have to deal with whatever the consequences of that fact was going to be. You know what's crazy is trying to imagine this scene today and there's just no way a parent would allow a doctor to touch their child this way. Yeah, to force the the spoon down her throat and... Yeah, I mean, hold it open while she screamed, and I mean, this is a real glimpse of that era, and I bet I'm sure even back then this was unusual, but certainly, you know, more likely that the parent, the parent's behavior, I find very believable, Mm -hmm. given the, the the setting of this. It's clearly in the past. Yeah, you know, as a reader today, that gives this story a kind of creepiness. Yeah. And speaking of Hitchcock, I know we might do an episode on Hitchcock soon. Yeah. <laughs> this, this this story could be a little Hitchcock, uh, yeah. you know, short film. <laughs> yeah, it's 
definitely has that. Uh, I definitely felt like I was in the world of my grandparents and, you know, where things were a lot tougher. I mean, they, the kinds of activities they would do or just the, the rough and tumble world that they lived in, very different from the world that I grew up in or that my kids are growing up in. Uh, I think you're right about that. But, you know, what, what would they do? I mean, what would they do if a child refused to open his mouth today? Would they use anesthetic or how would they get done well, what, what needs to be done? Whatever happened with trying to catch more bees with <laughs> flies with honey? Then. <laughs> you know? so, like, here's a lollipop. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's 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 three silver dollars, yeah. You know that you can clutch, right? So I had an experience like this at the dentist, where we waited for the dentist. We were waiting in the lobby. Uh, this was in New York. And we were waiting in the lobby, and and my son was fine. He was about three or four. It was his first trip to the dentist, and he was fine the whole time. And he was excited, and we had read him books about, you know, going to the dentist, and they're going to count your teeth and all this stuff. And then uh, when they said, okay, it's your turn, he jumped up and said, actually, I don't need to do this. And he ran out the door, and he ran, uh, you know, down the sidewalk. I had to chase him down uh, <laughs> down, down the streets of Manhattan. He was like, he made a, a getaway. And it surprised me because he had spent, you know, we had spent 30 minutes or something in the waiting room and he was fine. He was reading books and he, he did not express any sort of anxiety. And then actually, <laughs> when we brought him in, they made me get in the chair. Uh, yeah. They didn't think he would stay in the chair. So they made me get in the chair to hold him, uh. which I found to be kind of uncomfortable and awkward. And I kind of wished that we had, what was going through my mind was like, okay, great, but I'm not going to do this when he's 18, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. like we're going to have to break this habit. I, I think you're probably right. I mean, the narrator does try, he smiles in his best professional manner and he uses her first name and he says, open your mouth and let's take a look at your throat. Come on, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I don't have anything in my hands and that kind of thing. But he, they don't try any sort of bribe. They don't try any kind of any candy or anything like I don't know what would work with her, but uh, maybe nothing would work. Maybe that's maybe we don't even need to spend time on that in the story. I, I kind of read that in tandem with um, just seeing her as older than a, just a child because... Yeah, um, yeah. You, you you would think that sweets or some kind of bribe would work with a child, but what wouldn't work with someone a little older? Yeah. Uh, and when you know what you end up knowing about the child, I mean, she's the equal of all the adults in the room as far as her determination and her will, and her how strongly, how passionately she feels about concealing this from the rest of them. It probably would have been a waste of space in the story if they were trying to tell her that they would. Uh, give her some little treat or something. None of that was going to affect the way she was going to behave with them, I don't think. It, it would it would weaken the story, I think, to have done that. But, I, you know, I, I think that's the way a very, very short work has to work. You know, the way you, you think of what's not there and you start imagining. Mm -hmm. Did you think that this was, I mean, did you think this was giving us an honest depiction of physicians, or did you think this was showing us kind of a bad doctor? I think that it was an extreme doctor that 
99% of doctors would have said, you know, well, then you can go ahead and die because I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not going to like, you know, put my knee against your throat to force open your yeah. mouth. Or say, we'll, and, we'll try again later. Or I'll come back tomorrow. Or And, and that's, and that's the, <laughs> that's almost like the fun of the story that it's, it's yeah. like this boxing match at the end where you don't know who to cheer for, but you feel like, you know, there's gotta be a winner. I mean, that's, that's when it yeah. running through your head, you know? And I think that's that's what makes the story so good. Yeah, that, right. That, that you get that feeling, and you're not, and it's not an easy choice to say I'm for the doctor or I'm for the girl. And I I think ultimately, I was sort of for the doctor because he had kind of gone too far. There was no turning back now. <laughs> so he was either going to kill her or save the day. One see what's this, one sees these things through to the end. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> he's definitely, he's not, you know, he, he's he's probably not a very realistic doctor. Yeah, but, <laughs> but then, right, but then it also would be so easy once she's found out, once her secret is discovered, Yeah, to have her just collapse into the chair and relent and maybe just be smoldering at having had to give up her secret. But for her at that point to turn on him it almost made me like her more or to <laughs> like the thing that was in her more that it was that she wasn't just sort of, okay, I lost, I gave up my secret, but to basically be enraged that she had had to give that she, she had been forced to give up her secret and that I'm using the language of assault again, but that she was violated like this, that she then goes on the attack. It, it kind of, you know, I don't know if I like uh, the doctor that much and I don't know if I like her that much, but I like the things in them that pushed them to this point. And maybe not, maybe like is the wrong word, but I'm fascinated by the things that pushed the two of them to this point. It's pretty incredible that the story does this. And I think to read it aloud, I think it takes less than 10 minutes. <laughs> it's a very concise story, but there really is a lot packed in here. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's interesting to to read these like two-way threats, like Chekhov writing short stories and plays. And mm, yeah. I, I prim primarily know William Carlos Williams' poetry, so this yeah. was a really pleasant surprise. Yeah, or Philip Larkin, who started as a novelist and then wrote poetry, and I was just reading some essays about him and people commenting on what a novelistic poet he is. And I think we could say about William Carlos Williams that he's a, a poetic short story writer. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, let's leave things there, unless you have anything else, Mike. Anything else you want to chime in on here before we wrap things up? I might go reread some Patterson. Okay. I feel inspired. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, Mike, as always. Thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Mm, that's going to do it for this week's History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. What a great story. I should ask some of my doctor friends what they think, but maybe I don't want to know. Maybe I prefer to live in the happy world with the happy shades. In real life, that is. In the world of literature, I'm kind of glad to dig deep and to check out those dark currents flowing beneath the surface. In the hearts of professionals and in strong-willed patients and in the battles they fight with one another. 
I hope we're not fighting battles, dear listeners. You and I, I hope you are on board with me. I won't fight. I will turn the other cheek. And if you send me a nasty email, I will simply wipe away my tears, delete, and go on about my business. I know of no other way to keep going than to actually just keep going. (laughs) How's that for inspiration? Dear Jack, how do you keep going? Answer, great question. I keep going. That's what I do. I guess that's just what I do. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.